0: We are being recorded for the ASLH website online conference, so that's what we're up to today. Good morning. I'm Terry Davis, President and CEO of AASLH, and you are at the advocacy session. Um, If that's not the session you meant to be at, no, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Don't get up and leave, please. (laughs) I want to introduce our presenters today. First is Kim Fortney. And Kim is the Deputy Director of National History Day. And then uh, Gail Silbergleed. And Gail is the Director of Government Relations at AAM. And Gail and I have worked together for, I don't know, since she came to AAM, maybe three or four years or something now on um, Advocacy Day uh, for a very long time. So welcome to both of you. Welcome, Kim. I'm gonna kick stuff off and then we're gonna have each of our presenters do a short presentation and then um, leave some time for discussion but um, how many of you in the room just by a show of hands do advocacy of one sort of our uh, or another at the federal level how many of you do it at the state or local level do any advocacy okay so some of you don't really participate in advocacy um, at all. One of the things that um, I really want to make the case for is that advocacy is as important to your program um, and to your work as preparing financial statements, pr- having board meetings, doing communications plans, putting together collections policies, and all of the other stuff that you do. Um, I I can't imagine a world where things are just given to you without asking. And certainly with this um, community of museums and historical organizations around the country that do such important educational work as you do, we need to let our policy uh, makers understand how important the work is that you do and and what you're doing within the communities that they live within uh, in particular. Otherwise, why would they think of us when it's time to make any decisions on the Hill?" Well, the first thing that you may say is, I don't have time for all that. That's I, I used to say that. A lot of people have said that. But you certainly, um, I think, need to make time. And you can find ways to do that. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. But find ways to do that by wrapping it into your PR and communications and marketing and making it a part of your everyday work as opposed to thinking of advocacy as a separate program where you need to have separate staff and separate time and and all of that. Think of advocacy as a part of what you do on a day-to-day basis. So my my main um, thing that I like to tell people is if you don't ask, you ain't gonna get it. And so certainly if you want your um, people within your um, community or at... To know what you're doing and to support you, and certainly at the national level, if you would like to see more money coming down to um, museums and historical organizations uh, from IMLS or from any other source, you have to ask. There's absolutely uh, no other way around it. So we'll talk a little bit more about some ways that you can do that later. But what I'd like to do is to for you to hear a little bit um first from kim about the advocacy efforts for national history day and then from gail and so they will tell you about some of the national efforts that you can participate in and um, then maybe we'll bring it back down a little bit closer to home towards the end of the presentation so i'll turn it over to kim
1: thank you terry good morning everyone Um, i'm kim fortney with national history day And i'm thrilled to be here to talk about um, both national history day um, and how we as a field can can work more closely together to advocate for all of us as a whole Um, i like to think of um, a a synonym for advocate to be ambassador and uh, that that's something that we might think that all of our our staff members our colleagues are doing you know we want people to think of themselves as as an ambassador for the institution or for the field um, but just some food for thought are all of us doing that down to the frontline level and back up to the board level Um, I'd like to talk a bit about National History Day but very briefly um, could I see a show of hands of who is very familiar with, with National History Day Okay, a couple of you are. Um, well, just just the highlights then. <laughs> um, national History Day is a national program. It has been around sin- since 1974. Um, it's not a day. The, it was a day back in 1974, and now it uh, is made up of many days. Um, in fact, the national contest is a full week in mid-June. And uh, we wanna just con- convey, it, it sounds trite, but History Day is every day because we are studying history, we are making something of history. We're serving about 700,000 students in 40,000 teachers every year through the program. Um, and the, the main component of our program, of course, is the national contest, which does culminate each June, as I mentioned, um, in, in Maryland. Um, we have 57 affiliates which we're very excited about. We have all 50 states, um, d- with all, all 50 states doing a, a program now for, for National History Day. We have Guam and uh, a, American Sam- Samoa, the d- Department of Defense schools in both Europe and Puerto Rico, and we have two inr- international affiliates, um, East Asia, which is essentially Shanghai and Seoul, and the brand new one in South Asia, and that's where Kathy Gorn is right now. She's on a, on a plane to Indonesia, um to welcome them into the fold and do some training with their faculty and it's very exciting for for her to have that opportunity Um, the the contest begins with the regional level and then state and then to the national level students do their research on a topic of their choice um, governed by an annual theme and they can enter in one of five categories so they they can do an exhibit a documentary a performance a website or a paper And in all of those except paper, they can work in a group of up to five if they want. So, what what I love about this program is there really is something for every learning style and every every skill set. So, um, what I wanted to talk about in terms of National History Day is that our primary goal has been for a, a long time to elevate history education to a stronger position and one way that we have done that is our recent evaluation study and i brought some handouts with me which i'll pass around when we're done so i don't have noise in the microphone um but we we conducted an evaluation i shouldn't say we conducted we commissioned an evaluation um, which is a a formal study um, done by a, a group in in california called rockman et al um we asked them to look at um, student achievement and whether or not the program actually has a a quantitative impact. You know, we had 30 years full of anecdotal stories from teachers and kids and parents who say, hey, this is an awesome program, it changed my life, these kids are doing wonderful things, isn't it great? And that's wonderful news and they're, you know, tear-jerking stories in in some respects, but this is a data-driven world and it really doesn't cut it anymore to say, well, we know there are kids out there being positively impacted. We need to actually say, we know, because here are the numbers. <laughs> so we had, had this um, study done, and it w- it they, they looked at four schools across the country um, for one-year period. They looked at pre and post um, standardized test scores, writing samples, other kinds of per- performance measures, and interest in history and civics. And what we found does confirm, thankfully, <laughs> what we hoped it would. And we're very proud to, b- to, to be able to issue the bold statement that National History Day students outperform their peers. How cool is that? <laughs> I should mention that, that the um, study did, did compare apples to apples. So it was, it was National Hi- History Day participants compared to non-National um, History Day part- participants in the same grade levels and at, at the same tier in, in the structure. So gifted to gifted, middle to middle, lower lower to lower. It has been a prevalent myth of this program that it only works for gifted kids. And it's true that it, it works for gifted kids because gifted kids tend to wanna do every, everything and they excel at it, hence the term gifted. But it also works very, very well. And this, these findings have proven that um, for kids in the lower tier, they are doing better uh, through their experience in, in the program. So real quickly, some of the things that we're finding is that um, standardized test scores have gone way up you'll you'll see in the brochure there's some data from the texas test that is showing that um, national history day participants are are passing in the 67 percent range and their peers in the 19 percent range Um, the same is true of of an english assessment in south carolina of writing assessments um, critical thinking assessments and then we also ask students to rate their confidence level with certain things research skills um, communication skills Those types of things, and we're finding that National History Day students are more confident. One of the coolest things about the many wonderful aspects of of this study is that we're finding that, um, as you would assume would, would be the case, that when students excel in history and social studies, those skills just don't stop there, they transfer. So they're excelling in math, reading, science. And all the things that tend to get more attention (laughs) than than history um so we're very excited about that and again i'll have these to give you at the end of the session so we have this great study that costs lots of money and we have these snazzy brochures and it's on our website and what do we do next you know how how do we move the dial with this data so we're having our um, groundswell efforts, our, our, our um, state and, and regional coordinators, our troops more, more or less, boots on the ground, they're going out there speaking with schools, speaking with um, teachers and ad- administrators, speaking with community members, town leaders, that type of thing, um, up, up to the state level about the findings and about not just what it says about National History Day, but more broadly what it says about history education. So they're doing that effort. We've been taking it with us on our hill visits, as you are probably aware. Um, Congress is not in a money-giving mood <laughs> at the moment, so we're not really—you know—it's not having much of an effect currently. But it's—it's it's keeping our presence there and letting letting them know that that we um, have a good product, that it does well, and that it helps the whole field to move forward. Um, we are sharing it with current funders with potential funders, um, that that includes foundations. But what I wanted to talk with you about is that it is a tool for all of us. Um, Since, as as I mentioned, it is just as much about history education generally as it is about National History Day, we all can use this data. Um, I'm not seeing anyone in the room uh, who attended the session yesterday, but if if you were at at the session yesterday morning, please raise your hand with um, Janet Gallimore from Idaho State Historical Society. Okay, well, if you have a chance, look, look at the good work that Janet is doing. Um, she is using the, the data from an executive point of view. She's using it for advocacy at the state level, for fundraising at the state level, for marketing and rebranding their programs, linking to a program that it ha- now has proven results. And she's amazing, A, but B, <laughs> has just done gangbusters with this. Um, and then we also work, work with a teacher who, who co-presented with us, who talked about how he's using the program in the classroom. Um, the, the core message that I have for you today is that we cannot move this dial by ourselves. You know, we just, there are, there are seven of us full time and our board and our message, but we need everyone else to be sort of beating the same drum. And I would like to encourage that um, we as, as kindred spirits in, in, in the history world work toward a common goal of elevating history ed- education to a, to a place where it, it is respected and honored as much as math, reading, science, et cetera, because it relates to those topics. So simply put, if we want to do this, if, if we want to affect change with pol- policymakers, with um, people who you know, can really make things happen um, locally and nationally, and just as importantly, with the general public, we have to have a plan and, and our, our attitude can't just be, let's make them understand, but we really need to go and convince them um, with data like this, but also bringing in students, bringing in teachers, and really having a common message or a common voice to convey that with. So how can we make this happen? We, we could spend millions on a big, fancy marketing campaign that we all are asked to chip into. I'm not thinking that's gonna happen. <laughs> you know, somewhere along the line, boards are gonna say, What? <laughs> it's not gonna happen. Um, but what, what we can do, which is relatively inexpensive, is to think about how we explicitly convey the message of each of the programs. That, that, that we run and I, I say we because I, I, I come from, from the field prior to working for National History Day so I, I still speak we <laughs> anyway um, <laughs> but each, each exhibit we have each school program we, we run each time people come into our building they should be encountered by somebody or several people who are talking to them about the importance of history ed- education and, and al- also about the, the Im- importance of understanding history the content itself if everyone's sort of conveying that message in, in, in addition to, well, the bathrooms are down the hall to the right, it's going to, it's going to help us all out together. Um, if so we, we should be asking everyone to, to do that and thinking about our, our collections, our holdings, um, in a way that they're not just you know, pretty things that we do great exhibits about and programs, but how are those things important to the community? Um, how are they important as educational tools that can be used in, in the classroom and beyond? So I'd like to see us work as a common um, field with, with a common voice as much as possible. And uh, I want to give a nod to my friend Greg Stevens, which is who, who is a colleague of Gail's at AAM. Um, he came up with something he calls the the bullseye, which I don't have visuals, and it's better to, to con- convey visually, but since it's being recorded anyway, I'll try to explain it. Um, the, the the bullseye think of it as the the center circle. Um, that is basically the the in, the individual, so it's all about us. So we're we're in the middle, right? Um, then it goes out from there to our institutions, to in, in including them in, in in the group think, um, but then it goes on to the community level and then to the field level and eventually to everybody else. And it's our job to make sure that the message is the same from the middle out, and therefore we need to be using the same terms and speaking the same and Maybe what needs to happen is um, a forum sim- similar to one that Terry held um, se- several weeks ago that Kathy ad- attended and, and some, some, some other leaders of history organizations. That, that was a fantastic uh, way to begin that conversation. And I think more of that type of thing will happen in, in the future. But I, I do want to leave you with the, with the idea that, that I started with, which is that um, in, in, in my sense, the noun adv- advocate is the same as the noun ambassador. Um, and we need to think of ourselves that way, that we're ambassadors not just for our institutions, but for the field at large in terms of raising that bar, moving that needle or that dial of history education. Thank you.
2: Hi, good morning. Um, I have a couple of questions for you to start. So um, get your hand ready. Um, how many of you p- currently receive advocacy alerts from AAM? Great, good. How many of you have taken action on the website to contact Congress or others <coughs> about issues? Very good. How, any of you participated in Museums Advocacy Day? Great, all right. Um, okay, so those are my questions about current activity and then the other questions I have do all of you work how many of you work in a museum or a historic site do all of you yeah Um, and how many of you you have had elected officials visit those sites great at all levels federal level state level that's great good Um, and how many of you do educational programming at your site And how many of you do you think have elected officials who know about that kind of work that you're doing? That's not as many hands as the Mm -hmm. first part of that question. And how many of your sites are serious economic drivers in the community and tourist attractions and really bringing a lot of money to your base, your hometowns? And the second part of that question is how many of your elected officials are aware of that? Maybe not as many. So, Okay, so that's our, that's our starting point. Um, I have to tell you a little bit about myself. I worked for 11 years on Capitol Hill, uh, met with constituent groups for years and years, uh, many of them over and over and over. Every year they came back with the same message or a s- or slightly changed message. Um, And I also have another piece of um, background, so I I have a sense of where some of you are, and that is that I ran a small nonprofit, a 200,000 budget um, small nonprofit for about a year after I left the Hill. So I understand what it's like to be a small museum or a small association, and how many of you are from small institutions? Okay, good. So, um, So I have a pretty good idea of where you're all sitting, And I have a very good idea of where a lot of elected officials are sitting when they're in their offices meeting with constituents. So I wanna tell you a little bit about the principles that we use at AAM um, for our advocacy because these are largely learned from my time on Capitol Hill and the um, efforts working with the field. The first is speak with one voice. Now when I first got to AAM, I got to know a lot of the field and I found very quickly that we don't speak with one voice. And I thought, well. How do we get on the same page and make a clear, compelling message when, you know, think about what it's like for you if you have four or five people who ask you for something but they all want different things. Wouldn't it be more effective if those four or five people got together and said, boy, we've thought about this, we've worked through this, and this is what we want. So from an elected official's perspective, when you hear a coordinated um, message, it's gonna be much more effective. And I just wanna give Terry a great shout out here because. Terry was so incredibly instrumental in getting our field to say, um, to to even care about advocacy. I mean, it was so clear to me that people care about advocacy, but Terry was a real leader when I got to AAM three and a half years ago. So I just really appreciate all that she's done to help us all speak with one voice. Um, There's definitely strength in numbers. Um, If you picture the scene in a congressional office, I'll get to advocacy day in a minute, but if you picture the scene from an advocacy day meeting where you have sitting around the table um, a historic house represented, a botanic garden, an art museum, a children's museum, and a maritime museum. That's a very powerful message right there, just from who's around the table. Add to it an independent consultant who happens to run a small business that's affected by the museum community. That's another strong message. Add to it someone who is a student who goes to a local university in their, that member of Congress's hometown, and they're going to make a compelling case about the um, they wanna stay in their hometown and they're where the job's gonna be. So all of these people around the table make a re- great, compelling message together. It's really important to have a clear, concise ask. So when there's an effort around National History Day, it's a very clear ask. It's such a clear ask that I remember from my time on Capitol Hill, the ask that came around every year, (laughs) will you support National History Day? And I don't remember the exact dollar amount, but I do remember that it was every year, people came around, the letter circulated, and it was just something that people were aware of. There would have been no other reason for me to have known about it other than the fact that there was a coordinated advocacy message. Um, I think people make a lot of assumptions around their elected officials. And you should never assume anything. Don't assume that they know the programming you do. Don't assume that they know that you bring in this many people from around the country. Don't assume that they have any idea of anything about you because they have so many things coming at them. So never make any assumptions. And a great thing about museums, as opposed to a lot of other industries, you have a great product. You have a great um, show and tell opportunity. And you can tell such great success stories and such great individual stories about the people that come to your sites and museums. So um, never make any assumptions and always give find an opportunity to talk about those things. And we have a big challenge. I will say that you know on Capitol Hill, especially in the last few years, I've noticed that um, what museums are and what they do completely misunderstood on Capitol Hill. And that's why you see You, many of you, have seen the actions that have taken place of you know, no museums can apply for stimulus funding, and trying to eliminate IMLS funding, and oh, NEH, we don't need that. It's just you know frivolous, whatever. And I think that that is reflective not of the fact that they don't like you or don't care about you. It's that they don't see the value. They don't see well what kind of job creation comes from museums. Well, you know, half a million people working in the museum world. That's a lot of people, and The $20 billion that's generated in economic activity, well, that's kind of significant too. So if they don't hear about it, they won't know about it. Um, So we have to do a really good job of telling our story. What do we do? Um, And I think Advocacy Day is a good chance to do that. So Terry asked me to tell you a little bit about some of the resources that we have at AAM. And I wanna just go through a couple of things that you can find on the website, speakupformuseums.org um one is you can look up who represents you you can you know how many of you actually know all of your state elected officials and your federal elected officials and your local elected officials i I can say where i live I, i i think i know all of them but i'm not sure that i know every person at every level so um you know i really work so hard on the federal level that i'm really focused there there's a lot of people to keep track of um and i've moved around a bit but You can look it up, you can put in your address, you can find out exactly who represents you at all levels of government. That's a great start right there because you can find out who they are, add them to your mailing list. It's very simple, just a great little starting point. Um, You can find some advocacy training programs, free advocacy training programs just to get you started. There are many recorded programs that we've done in the past, so you can look for those. We have template letters that you can let your elected officials know about the economic impact you have in the community. You plug in five pieces of information that you, I'm sure, have readily available to you, and you let them know how many people you employ, how much money you spend in the community, i.e. what your budget is. Um, And it's a great way to just start a dialogue. You can also find a template letter where you can invite them to visit your museum. And many of you have invited your federal elected officials, but if you haven't, that's a great way to get started with that. And that just starts the dialogue, so you have that relationship. You certainly don't want the first time you go visit your elected official to be, I need X. It's, you want the first time to be, hi, it's nice to meet you, let me show you what we're doing. What kind of questions do you have? How can we be helpful to you? The next time you go, it's, oh, it's great to see you again. This is something we're doing new this year. And the third time you go, it's, hey, could you help us out? We're having this problem. You see how that works? That's kind of what you want. So you have to ask, as Terry said, but you also wanna make sure that you have a relationship there. And I think we've, as a museum field, I think we've waited and now we're in this crisis situation and it's like too late. You can't be like, save us, we need this money, or save us, we're the, I mean, it's too late. So we have to start over and say, okay, we're gonna build relationships, get to know everyone. Um, We also have a place where you can build an economic impact statement similar to that letter. We also have facts and statistics about museums generally. We have issue briefs that that go through some of the issues. I don't think we have every issue on there. We probably should add National History Day to that list. Um, You can sign up for alerts so that you can be aware of when there's a take action moment. And you can kind of just learn how to advocate, tips and tricks about how to do it, how to make it real easy. It's not complicated. And I know a lot of you are thinking, gosh, this is all very, some people when I talk to them about advocacy, say, gosh, it's so overwhelming. There's so much you could do. It's one of those things. It's not like you could, you know, check off a box. I've done advocacy today. It's like advocacy could be every day, everywhere, everything. And my message to you is, you have probably some some small ways that you can do it on a regular basis. Many of you also have a board of directors. How many have a board of directors? Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe there's somebody on your board of directors that would be your that could become your advocacy point person. They could um, do an advocacy report at your board meeting. They could get to start meeting your elected officials. They could be the ones to set up those meetings. How many of you have a board of directors that? want to be asked to do something aside from contribute money. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's where you have somebody on your board, maybe more than one person is probably a good candidate for this, send them to Advocacy Day. You know, we'll give them great training and then you can have them come back and tell you all about how it went. Maybe the next year you send a different board member, but I think that's a great way to represent your, um, your museum and also expand the reach and not have it be something that you yourself is always responsible for. Okay, so Museums Advocacy Day. Everybody has heard of Museums Advocacy Day? Yes, great. Um, It's a two-day event in Washington, D.C. I have Save the Date cards here, February 27th and 28th. Um, We bring you to Washington for a day of advocacy training. I tell you this year I'm already working on the program for it, it's gonna be a lot of fun. Um, and we also then the, that evening we have a congressional reception. This year we're going to be on Capitol Hill having that reception. Members of Congress come and speak the next morning. We have another event. Members of Congress come and speak, and then we send you to your congressional offices to visit your elected officials and their staff. And it's a great, great way to not only get your message out there, introduce yourself to those folks. But it's also a great networking opportunity because you're gonna be working with your state delegation as you make those visits. So it's a great opportunity. We're extremely grateful to ASLH for partnering with us and sponsoring the event and being a co-convener and working with us on the planning. So thank you again, Terry. Um, Terry's my hero. Um, (laughs) And um, as Ford Bell mentioned yesterday, ASLH is having their board meeting in washington around advocacy day so i'm really thrilled that we'll have so many aslh board members with us this year as well Um, the other closing point i want to make on advocacy day is that as i said i was on capitol hill for many years and everybody has an advocacy day the dentists come every year the social workers come every year the sand gravel and concrete industry comes every year the chair manufacturers come every year i mean it is unbelievable the museum community has never had this up until three years ago and I mean sorry but there's no excuse for that (laughs) Um, so we are now doing this as a collected collective unit and yes there's an Arts Advocacy Day and yes there's a Humanities Advocacy Day and there there are other places where you can make the case no one made the case for museums like this and there's a consequence to that and we're seeing that on the Hill now so I encourage you to Um, come, send a staff person, send a trustee. I promise you, you'll have a great time um, and we'll speak with one voice and make our case. And finally, I have to make a plug because my colleague at home will kill me if I don't and that is for the museum benchmarking online. Without good data, we're lost in terms of advocacy. When I go to Capitol Hill and I go to visit with Congressman X from wherever, I can't tell them with any certainty How many museums are in their district what kind of effect there is in their state of museums i mean i have such limited information that i can take into that office and that just kills me every time because they always ask and i'm like oh they asked again so we have to give our data to this project if you could just please do me a favor it won't cost you anything it'll be a few minutes of your time enter your data some of you might be familiar with the Museum Fini- Financial Information Survey, the MFI, we used to do this every three years, and it was a book that came out. That's no longer, it's now online, it's real time, you can slice it and dice the information in all kinds of wi- great ways. And so my pitch is, please enter your information into there. There's also a subscription, so you can get some information out of it, but we really need the data in there to help us make the case for museums. So thanks for letting me talk about all of this and. I'll pass it back to Terry. Is
0: the
2: yes. Yes. Oh, the question was, the museum benchmarking online information is on the AM website, am-us.org.
0: Any other questions before we get started, or, or, uh uh-huh, Go ahead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now you're with the humanities uh, foundation oh you're a historical society okay and you don't have other history organizations around you that are where are you with have you participated with your state museum association i know that okay i know that vam has a very active and and awesome uh, state museum association but i'm i'm trying to make sure i understand your question and your question is so when I participate I- with other groups in our region it's always arts groups. it's always arts groups so that's the, that's the challenge for us. and it's not history because the they're they're small they're they're itty bitty places around you right. Mhm. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly the first thing that I want to say is it's it is important what you're doing to participate in advocating for arts and culture um in in general because um d- members of Congress tend to see all sort of things, you know, in packages and combined and so it's really important what what you're doing and all of the agencies, whether they're NEA or NEH or IMLS or any of the alphabet soup agencies that uh, give money to the good work that you do, it's important to support them. So thank you for doing that. But I think that um, if you're in a region where you, you're you the 500,000-pound elephant or whatever the term is, <laughs> gorilla, elephant, something kind of animal. Um, that maybe you have an opportunity to um, to really be a leader there and to pull together your history organizations within um, within that region and, and um, be the leader on putting together um, some messaging that everybody can use and, and uh, teach them how they can do that without taking up a lot of time. One of the things that I think people think about advocacy is that It's a sprint, and it's not. It's a marathon. Um, You know, advocacy is a long-term deal. It's sort of like planned giving. You know, if you go after uh, John C. Smith for a for a gift in his will, you can bet that guy's going to live to be 104. I mean, you know, (laughs) it's (laughs) it's one of those uh, things that just happens. And so, I think that we have to get the, the organizations, I, the sma- even the smallest of small organizations around to understand that um, you have to start now, but it's a long-term thing that there's, there's not going to be any um, realistic um, product or, or victory that you're going to be celebrating in the next six months. But I guess I would, I would see your organization, I'm sure the history organizations around you look up to you as a leader within your region and maybe you can help develop some messaging and some simple ways um, to um, get them to participate in, in advocacy. The deal that Gail was talking about with the template letters online and things like that, when the advocacy alerts come out, and I don't know if those organizations get those or not, um, we pass them along, so maybe they get them from us, maybe someplace else. but. I mean, it literally takes seconds when you get an advocacy alert to type your zip code in there, and um, the text is already there. That um, is the kind of service that we need for organizations like these smaller ones, and I think that they're intimidated by the term advocacy. They're intimidated by the whole notion that they're too small. I mean, it's, it's sort of like... The national debt. What could, What the heck can I do about the national debt? Is so darn big. I, you know, I don't even comprehend it. Uh, but I think that if you can help them understand that there is a, a role, that the number of small organizations in America is astronomical. Um, you know, I am less used to say that there was fourteen thousand five hundred museums in America. Those of us in history always knew that those numbers were just outrageously small because there's that many history organizations. If you want to. Count the ones like you're talking about. Then they went up. I think on their last publication to 175, and you know, creeping up. And and I um, called just before this meeting, and because they have a, a museum count program where they're trying to do a census, and they said by the end of the year they'll be up to probably 25,000. And I dare say that, that that's probably even small. So anyway, the point that I'm I'm spending too much time on is that the number of organizations like you're talking about um, who um, members of Congress would love to hear from because they never hear from people um, in those kinds of, from those kinds of communities and rural, and um, that their voice is just so important and so maybe you could have some kind of a forum for calling them together and, le- and helping them understand that how important they are. Um, I think this whole feeling of I, I don't matter to Congress because I'm a small, all-volunteer historic house museum is a real problem that you um, might be able to help do something about. Do either of you have anything to add to that?
2: I would add two things first the arts community has been at this longer has more money behind it and um, I can tell you just from the Washington DC presence very very strong presence and we work with them because we represent a lot of the arts community and are proud to do that Um, but it's like a whole different thing they've got you know sort of like the the big giant museum versus the little giant museum. I just feel like, oh my God, how'd they get all that resources? And they've also been doing it for years. I mean, as a Hill staffer, I saw the Arts Advocacy Day people coming from a mile away. Every year they came back. And they had a coordinated group that was, you know, pretty much, I mean, with all respect, you know, in my face if I wasn't responsive on the arts issues. And that didn't happen from the humanities, history, museum community. So they're in a different position because they've been doing this for years and years and years. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is I think Terry's exactly right that you can play a real leadership role. Gather them together. We're having, um, in October 25th, we have a webinar called um, What is Museum's Advocacy Day? And we have a webinar coming up in a few weeks on um, on charitable giving and the, and the, the very serious proposals that are out there to restrict the deductibility of these gifts that's going to affect all of them or all nonprofits, I'm sure so you know gather them together for a watch party these are free programs but you can do them a service by having them gather together learn about these issues and I think sometimes there's this intimidation factor but encourage their boards to get involved because someone on their board probably is connected in some way to elected officials so those are my two additions
0: Thanks, Gil. I think that's that's really important. Um, you know, and the other thing is in this, uh, Donna, I'm sorry.
3: Mm-hmm. It's they think it's mm-hmm. <coughs>
2: It's a great question, and I'm really glad you asked it, and every time I hear it, it makes my, my skin get like Urgh. It does, it makes all of us crazy. I think that the issue is that, um, and just to repeat the question for the um, recorders over there, we're gonna give me the evil eye if they're over there. Um, the question is, are nonprofits really allowed to advocate? Um, because a lot of them feel that they're not allowed to. And so we hear that time come again, and yes, it's very uh, difficult. Yes, 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 you're allowed to. Not only are you allowed to, you are bound by your duty as a nonprofit leader to advocate. You have to do it. It's your civic duty. It's like paying taxes. It's like being on a jury. It's like, you know, you must, must, must make your case. It's absolutely essential. And yes, you're allowed to do it. Um, It just so happens that that was a little softball for you to – Give me a chance to tell you that I've written a book called Speak Up for Museums. There is a chapter devoted to that very question. What's allowed and what's not? The chapter goes through, yes, you can do this, but you can't do that. Yes, you can do this, and you can't do that. So it's basically, you are allowed to advocate, you are allowed to lobby, you are allowed to support HR 12 or S1762. Yes, you're allowed to do all those things, the only things you're not allowed to do as a nonprofit is you can't take sides in an election. You could say, you can even do get out the vote efforts. You could even say, hey, get out the vote. What you can't do is, hey, get out the vote, vote for that guy. Can't do that. But you can get out the vote. You can be an election site. You can tell people, you can provide information about some of the issues that you care about. There's so many things that you can do. That makes me so angry when I hear that people feel like you're not allowed to. And we're gonna cover that on our charitable giving um, webinar because we know that there are going to be people who are interested in that very question, especially going into an election year. You know, this is an opportunity, people are out there. So um, stay tuned for that. September 27th is our charitable giving webinar. They're all free. So I'll be sure to make sure that's covered and you know, you can look into this book too. I
1: just wanna jump on that. Um, uh, similar to the to the idea that you know we might think we aren't allowed to do it um, is also fa- um, it it feeds into the fear of the unknown a little bit and the intimidation factor that we we all face when there's somebody we think is lofty and we're af- afraid to speak to them. we don't know how to speak to them and um, I, I think the the best way to combat that is t- is to do do your homework. So you know, People who come to to Congress have backgrounds. They weren't just born five seconds prior to the election and then they go on the Hill. They have backgrounds. They <laughs> <laughs> well, you <laughs> you wonder about some of them, but, <laughs> um, but they they're they're adults. So what have they done before that? You know, what were their favorite subjects? What did they study in college? Um, were th- were they teachers? Were they lawyers? Were they doctors? Um, most con- congressional websites there's a lengthy bio. It's all very flowing with lots of ad adjectives about how wonderful they are, but it usually is also chock full of those basic pieces of, of, of information. Then when you go and speak to them, you know it's like getting ready for, for a job interview. You, you can go in completely unprepared or you can look up all the people you're going to meet with so that you hit the point that, that you know they have an interest in so you you do the same meeting with with member of congress you know oh i i see that you've written a book about x well <laughs> i happen to have an interest there or that type of thing really helps quite a bit and of have yes yes
0: question
2: Does Do public-private partnerships complicate the relationship of what are you allowed to do? That's the question, and, and I think the answer is no. I think that um, partnerships is a whole different thing. Um, and, y- you know, y- you do have to be aware of what you put your name on. So if you have a, a partnership with an organization and they happen to be holding a museum holding an event a political event at a museum which they're allowed to do if they pay the going rate for it. you want to be sure your name isn't on that. you might not even want to you might want to not be there or something like that but the same rules apply. You just have to be careful of what happens with your name but I don't think it complicates things. Um, if there are ever questions about that kind of thing, you can always contact us you can ask us. We also have some resources that we work with in Washington to help us with those sorts of questions. Independent sector is a great resource. Alliance for Justice has a, a helpline, you can call them at any time with any sort of conflict c- potential questions. So and just to
0: further this part yeah. to educate myself, but yeah. uh, you know, we're a historical society, we also have a foundation. And so that's you know, how much can we send the foundation out to be our advocate versus and we're state agency. So how much can we is that never or is that part of the
2: well, One thing that comes up with the state agencies is that, you know, you do have restrictions on what you can do as a state agency in terms of lobbying your state. Just like if you worked for the National Park Service and you were a museum under the Park Service, you you have to be aware of what you're doing on company time, but you as an individual are allowed to identify yourself as an employee there, but you're here in your personal capacity. So you could come to Advocacy Day, for example, and say, in my, my work situation is X, but I'm here as a private person because I care about this issue. So there are times when you have to sort of, you know, be a little careful of that, but usually there are definitely ways to make your case. And certainly as a citizen, when you signed your employment contract, you did not sign away your rights to advocate. So if you care about an issue, you personally can always, always advocate on it, no question it about it.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: sure well advocacy is sort of broadly defined as making your case so Mm -hmm. just talking about what you do and showing the economic impact showing the educational impact lobbying is this small subset within there that is making your case for a specific piece of legislation Um, you know we urge a congressperson to support HR12. That would be an act of lobbying. But there's no prohibition against that, except for you couldn’t as a nonprofit spend 100% of your time doing that. There are restrictions. I've never come across a nonprofit that that, that goes over that line. I've never come across it. Even AAM, we have three staffers who are registered federal lobbyists. And even at AM, we don't go over that line of, of spending too much time, money, whatever, on lobbying. So there's a restriction in terms of how much time you're allowed to, trust me, the museum community is not over that line. They're not spending more time than they're allowed to lobbying and advocating. So yeah, if you are like, I wanna find you because you'd be the first person I've ever heard of. It. I mean, that's just not, the, That that's a concern that we hear as, a, as sort of the what do they call it, an urban legend? But that's not the reality. I think that there are times when you have to be mindful of your state employee and you have to do certain things and you're a federal employee and you're allowed to do certain things. But you as a private citizen can always, always, always lobby and advocate, no question about it.
0: Um, This difference between advocacy and lobbying is a really important a really important one when you get the the alerts and says please do uh, um, please go into the website and say support uh, this particular bill and that is lobbying and it takes you two seconds so you, you know you know you haven't spent a lot of time on it um, that's one thing but one of the points that I want to make about advocacy is that it's a happy thing <laughs> advocacy is about telling stakeholders about the good work that you do and i can't imagine why you wouldn't want your um members of your state legislature your county your federal to to know and to understand about the good work that you do Um, when i said a minute ago that it was um a a marathon and not a sprint um, what i meant by that was (coughs) which gail alluded to as her time on the hill of people coming in Time after time, it's hard to imagine the first few times that you have your sena- state senator or your county commissioner or whoever, and you make a big deal, and you you know they love photo ops, and you you put it in your newsletter, and you have your picture taken with their big white smiley teeth, and you you know next to your uh, tractor or whatever it is you're going to do, and put it in the paper and everything. It's very hard to imagine at the time that that happens how that's going to pay off in the long term. But those things do pay off in the long term when you get um, somebody who really understands what you do and is associated associated with what you do, and it's amazing how many um, congressmen, for example, will say when when they're um, w- when they're campaigning, uh, well, I went out to X Y Z County and stood by you know and saw this wonderful work they're doing in the tractors and. So on and so forth, because they want people to understand that they're out in the in the hinterlands of their um, of their um, constituents. Now, n- this goes true holds true for you if you're an urban city urban center too. But my point is that um, they they ha- they can use you as much as you can use them, and I think that advocacy should be a happy thing of telling the world and certainly this is an important part of the world about the good work that you do so just just don't leave them out s- um, surely you when you do marketing for programs you have lists database that you send stuff out to uh, press releases or something just make sure that they're on there it's the smallest smallest thing that you can do and then um, give them a, s- a phone call for a special invite to come out and and uh, be seen at your place. Um, they, they love to be seen at places and have photo ops. So think about it as a fun thing and and um, um, a thing of pride and not necessarily as, a, oh my God, I got to add advocacy to my list of things to do. Oh, with me, what am I going to do now? <laughs> I've got another thing to do. Gosh, we do a lot of that, don't I, I am a big whiner, in case you can't <laughs> tell. So I, I totally get it when you add stuff to your add stuff to your list. I don't do it at, at work, but when I get home, I'm like, oh my God, you would believe what I've got to do now, you know? So I totally get that. I think that if you um, consider <coughs> advocacy as a part of your marketing plan uh, or PR, w- and especially within your strategic planning, you'll find it just sort of happens organically, that it's not something that you have to spend a lot of time thinking about. That's where you want to get, to where you don't have to think about doing advocacy. And then all of a sudden, when people like Gail say, raise your hand if you do this or that, you're like, oh, my God, I'm the perfect person. uh, You know, I've done everything that that Gail at AAM says I should do. I I must, uh, you know, I must really be special, and and you are. (laughs) And so I think that you need to think about strategic planning. and think about the role that advocacy plays within your communications within uh, strategic planning.
2: think about first of all think about your own email i mean there's something different about getting a letter that has your um letterhead and has your you know whatever or a phone call call. i mean think about how you react to these things i get bazillions of emails every day i do respond to all of them but I, i get so many that i think that i feel like people have an easier time deleting an email than they do that on capitol hill anyway which is what i can speak to Everything's handled the same way, so it doesn't matter. Um, in fact, when I was when I was still on the Hill was the time of 9-11 and anthrax and the information flow of paper was so restricted that if it did get there, it was all irradiated and it smelled funny and you just didn't even wanna touch it. Um, so I will say that um, in a congressional office, everything that comes in is entered into their database the same exact way, whether it's an email, a phone call, if if you're a constituent. Now, if you're not a constituent, they pretty much don't wanna hear from you. Sorry, that's just the way it is. (laughs) Um, But if you're a constituent, it does go in the same way. Um, I will say the other thing I get asked a lot of times is, you know, what's the most effective message? And I think to Kim's point, it really depends on who you're making the case to. And so doing that research is so important I mean think about the message of why would you give your support to National History Day? A different argument might work with everyone in this room, or why would you support money for IMLS? A different argument might work best for each person in this room depending on your background and your experience. So to that point. Tell me who said that and I go tell them. <laughs>
1: Just to add to that, it's, it's a matter of, of, of personal preference too because as Gail said, you know it, it, it's recorded by the staffers regardless of the method it comes in. Um, you know mailed letters do go through that ir- irradiation process still. so it can take weeks and weeks and weeks for things to get to the hill and then the, the point is moot. It's long past when you wanted to send them an invitation to something. Um, so you know sending a letter and faxing it works or a phone call there's nothing like the power of voice you know or going as, asking to go and see them if if that is within your means and and the time that you have to go and see them and have that face-to-face conversation um, those things work better and you know when when we want our grassroots folks to go and call their their house members or um, senators we kind of give them talking points and say we'd, we'd like you to focus on x y and z but we want you to tailor it to what is going to be the best message you can give because you are a constituent and as you know there's there's no way to un- understate that they want to hear from their constituents and they don't necessarily care <laughs> what you think if you aren't one um just as you might not if if you were in their shoes you know they they need to play to the people that will hopefully reelect them so and also to play upon something Terry said um about you know having having that message and thinking about what is your um, role in, in, in ad- advocacy? What, what are your institution's goals in terms of advocacy? I, I encourage you to think about what those goals are and then how that plays out at every level. So what is the message that the board is going to take from these goals? You know, what, what, what trumpet will, will they use? What, what will the senior staff be doing? What will the mid-level staff be doing? Ma- maybe you don't want them doing anything. May- maybe it needs to come from the top I- exclusively. But the, f- the frontline people, I can't say that enough. You know, They're the ones who see the most people. <laughs> and they need to know what's going on at some point um, on their level, what it is they can say, and more importantly, what it is they can't say because you sometimes have a, a goal with that ad, advocacy that you're trying to keep under your hat because you, you have a mission there that you really wanna get something accomplished. And so you need to let, let your frontline staff know, okay, here's what we're trying to do. This is what you can and cannot say um, ab- about that.
2: So that you're all speaking with one voice with a common purpose. So can I, I, I just wanna add one thing. Um, I think that the point that the person who said, as you mentioned, it's better to write a letter than send an email. My guess is that their point was that it's better to personalize your message. And I will tell you that with AAM's online advocacy tools, you can do exactly that. So it could take you three seconds, as Terry said, um, to put in your information and hit send. But we usually, in those unless it's like you know, vote today. Um, usually we have a box in the template where you can, optional, um, you can input some personal information about um, how this particular issue has impacted you. So, for example, I support 50 million for the IMLS Office of Museum Services, here's my information, and that, that's all in there you might have a box where you can say, and we got one of those grants and it helped our museum do X, Y, Z. So you can do that online, you can do that through a letter. You know, yeah, there are gonna be a handful of um, congressional offices where the member of Congress might see some of those actual letters. They just as, as likely will see some of those emails. It's all handled the same way.
0: One of the other things that I wanted to mention is what it, um, what type of a dialogue it is that you have with um, your members of Congress or your state legislature, and how you start talking to them. I find a lot of people are pretty intimidated by um, the notion of sitting across the table from somebody who's a me- an elected official. Um, a, yeah, chances are um, in. DC of sitting across from that elected official, are n- most of the time you you get staff members um, that you meet with anyway. And uh, and the first point is that those staff members are, are just as important as the elected official because they are the voice of the elected official. So if you are relegated to a staff member, don't don't feel you know slighted. That's just a matter of the process that they go through. But they do get everything, as far as I know, back to the member of Congress. But one of the things uh, and one of the techniques that is really, really um, good, whether you're talking to a staff member or a member of Congress or state legislature, is to, you know, how people like to talk about themselves, uh, get them get talking about themselves, well, what what what's your favorite history organization, you know, and where, y- where you grew up, did you grow up here and, you know, have them give something, some information to you that you can use against them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, that you can use <laughs> with them um, on your approach because um, somebody in here said a lot of, I think it may have been you, a lot of elected officials um, have history degrees, but um, who doesn't have some history memory that you want to bring so that you can start out your dialogue with them on a real warm fuzzy that's about them? And I think that really sets the tone for the discussion and as the discussion goes along maybe not the first time as gail said or whenever it's time for you to start asking for something or saying hey we could really use some help with this or did you know that um the institute of museum and library services is the you know the only one that helps museums uh, within their has the name museum in the agency and only has 33 million dollars and there's 25,000 of us and all that you know, all, all of that will mean more to them if they're looking at it from a personal perspective of how they have um, seen history from their own, uh, fr- in their own lives. So um, that's just one approach that's worked well, I know, with a lot of organizations. Um, many organizations that have uh, members of Congress out to um, visit them, as, as the ladies have said, have done their research and can uh, tell the congressman or, or whoever it is, we know that you voted for such and such and here's how that helped my... And it, ma- and it may be something as simple as um, zoning or a highway or something like that. If it's a state, it doesn't have to necessarily be something that, that involves culture that they voted on that's impacted your museum because you all know as well as I do that if you've got a public site that all sorts of things around you and your environment impact uh, the the visitor experience at the site. So those are important things, too. What other kinds of questions and help can we give you? Come here and then there. Uh-huh. Good. Uh, What state? Good.
2: Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for working with your state association. When we do Advocacy Day, we want to make it clear that we are a field, that we are a broad based field, that we are the ASLH, we are the science and technology, we are art museums, we are public gardens, et cetera, et cetera, and that we represent all the regions of the country and all the states across the country. And um, you happen to have some very important people. On capitol hill from kentucky and so we um, would very very much welcome the kentucky um, state association as a partner with us on advocacy day Um, we have people from state associations that are helping us plan the event um, so i'd love to talk more with you about that just having kentucky listed as a supporter and sponsor of advocacy day makes a huge impact we go to capitol hill and they go so you know they sort of like it's sort of like the sign of approve sign of what is it like the good hap- housekeeping seal it's like the accreditation seal um it means something you know and they see that oh well my state association and for that matter my kentucky humanities council and my kentucky historical society and my you know all of those groups if we had all three associations on board for advocacy day that's huge and the arts council too and everyone else too So um, I welcome that input and I'd love to get your card so I can follow up with you. (laughs)
3: Yes <laughs> <laughs> so
1: the the question is that, that you have a representative who comes to functions but yet votes against you. Um, that to me says that there's a key piece he doesn't get you know and what he doesn't get is the importance and and the relevance not only to him to um, his region um, to, to his district, but he needs to, he needs to get the financial and that's probably uh, my guess is that's what's missing you know what what is the economic impact that the institution has um and not just a number of jobs because sometimes that's slow well we employ six full-time people and a bunch of volunteers that's great but (laughs) you know you're a big, w- exactly. So um, how many people exactly, and how, m- how many people are being touched by that? Do you have a capital campaign where, where you're working with a construction crew? You know, what sort of local jobs can you relate to? Um, what sort of money is coming in thr- thr- through your admission from people coming to visit? And are they paying to park somewhere? Are, th- are they having lunch somewhere? Um, so all of those little things add up to a dollar figure that is more impressive than you might think and sometimes that's what responds to them. And then if you have any quantitative data, well, we do X number of, of school programs a year and we can show through the evaluations we've done that um, student achievement is, is improving and teachers love us and they keep coming back year after year and here are some testimonials and you know, so on and so forth. There are ways to really just fill in what those, what those
2: gaps might be. The, here's the bad side of that. It may be that they show up at all of those things because they feel really badly that they're not supporting the right things. Um, so <laughs> that's <laughs> that's possible. Um, but I, I do think that there's a value here and this might be a really good case study. So can you tell us anything more about sort of their profile? Just to Right. So, for my um, colleague back there who is recording this session, I will just repeat quickly that we have. You know, how do you break through when you have a very conservative, fiscally thoughtful member of the state legislature or any other body, and they seem to support you, but they they come to all your events, smile nicely, but don't vote with you when you need something. And um, I think that the economic impact will will help, I think that showing them your um, peeling paint and showing them your collections that are at risk and showing them your storage facility and perhaps arranging a tour where you can show them not only some of your things, but show them some of those other smaller um, historical societies and some of the desperate cir- circumstances that they're in they might just be willing to go to bed for you it might be that their perception is that they go to these banquets and they go to these events and everything looks very spotless and sparkling and the drinks are good and everything sort of feels right to them so they don't maybe they may not have a full picture of what it really looks like but i think show them your peeling paint is kind of my my thinking that could help the other thing is that there are often tax issues and Zoning issues and other things that they can be helpful with. So, for example, in, on Capitol Hill, um, you know, someone might be able to be very helpful on this charitable giving. It turns out that a lot of the um, very conservative Republicans are the ones who are saying, yeah, don't touch that charitable giving deduction. And they know that they're not going to be supporting the nonprofits with funding from the government. So, we all better incentivize it for our public. So, they actually are the ones. Um, John Thune from South Dakota, very conservative Republican, who's one of the leaders on this issue. So I think that you can go to them for things. We had an example I want to share with you just to show you how these things work. At Museums Advocacy Day, brand new member of Congress from Illinois, um, re- very Republican, very conservative, very um, very hardline, ran on no funding, no funding, no funding, which is fine. You know, I respect that um, to a point. Um, so they come in and the constituents are like they're not going to support us why do we have to go visit that guy oh nothing's going to come from that blah 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 they're all complaining about it they went in there turns out that they said you know how can we be helpful to you because that's one thing that you can do to sort of start this kind of thing and it turned out that they were planning to have a congressional arts competition which many members of congress do and they held it at their museum thus building a relationship and starting that dialogue no that doesn't solve your financial woes but it certainly helps to raise awareness um, it's something you can talk about with your board and your funders and everything else so I think don't write them off never write them off it's great that they're supportive but show them the peeling paint can I guess I one more thing
1: Just <laughs> so sad one more comment to that and that is um, use the power of your network so if you are going to Rotary or to Lions Club meetings or somebody else on, on your staff is, if, if, if you aren't the executive director, though, I'm guessing you are, um, you know, that, that helps so much because you, you go to those things weekly, you stand up and talk about uh, who you are and wha- what fantastic things that you're doing in, in the um, local area and that network will build. And it might be, you know, two years down the road that it pays off. And so you, you, you begin to know, well, you know, all, all politics is local, right? So who knows this person? What board members can you reach out to that um, socialize with him at, at the country club or whatever it is, um, and how, you know, is, is this person ever coming to Rotary or um, coming to hear what you have to say? So what part of that network can you use? And you know that's why it's so important to, to build it and to maintain it and to stay active in it so that it it can be there to help you at those moments when, oh dear, I have to get to this person right now with this most important message.
0: Well, our time is up. You have evaluations on your chair I wish you would fill out, but uh, the last thing I would like to leave you with is um, just because Congress says they don't have any money doesn't mean they don't have any money. (laughs) And just because they don't have any money for you this year doesn't mean that it's gonna be like that forever. Remember, this is a marathon and not a sprint, and please uh, keep at it because eventually it will pay off, and hopefully in another two or three years we'll be sitting here doing some cheering about the good work. Thank you so much.